bei der Arbeit für richtig hältst, ob du glaubst, dass ich fleißig gewesen bin, dass ich gearbeitet habe, dass ich mich in diesen Jahren für dich eingesetzt habe, dass ich anständig meine Zeit verwendet habe im Dienste meines Volkes. Gib du jetzt deine Stimme ab. Wenn ja, dann tritt für mich ein, so wie ich für dich eingesetzt bin. A lot of us have had terrible first days on the job. We run into rude customers. We have managers who get impatient when we don't automatically know how to do something. But I will always argue that Prime Minister Winston Churchill has us all beat. Tensions with Germany have been building across Europe after the ascension of Adolf Hitler to power. In 1939, the Germans had invaded Poland, but in hopes of avoiding another great war, several countries turned a blind eye to what was unfolding. In Parliament, many thought that the United Kingdom should seek some sort of truce with Hitler, thinking that however evil the man might be, they would be spared the loss of another generation of men. It was Churchill who was the most vocal about his disdain for this idea. He was almost clairvoyant in the sense that Europe would not know peace if Germany broke its treaties from the previous war. Under the Treaty of Versailles, Germany's economy had buckled. Printing money led to insane hyperinflation. People were miserable and suffering. Initially, the Nazis were a fairly unpopular right-wing extremist group, but as they grew in power, they preyed on the fears of the suffering German population. Hitler had been part of a failed coup, pinning a book about his, quote, struggle, and he was eventually released. Germany's Weimar government was full of Jewish people, he claimed. And the Austrian native, who was once a soldier who dreamed of being an artist, became sort of a charismatic leader. He wanted to restore Germany's powerful forces, albeit with violence and death. As Churchill warned others of the fact that Germany was preparing for war, not self-preservation, he was often ignored. The current Prime Minister, Neville Chamberlain, believed that there was a chance for peace. How wrong he was. Chamberlain resigned, Churchill took his place, and on May 10th, 1940, his first day on the job, Churchill learned that he had been right all along. The Nazi invasion of Western Europe had begun and Churchill would pledge his blood, sweat, and tears to his country. As cliche as it sounds, he really did. He pledged to fight everywhere he could. The British Empire and the French Republic linked together in their cause and in their need will defend to the death their native soil, aiding each other like good comrades to the utmost of their strength. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. 
never surrender. And if, because I do not for a moment believe this island or a large part of it was subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until in God's good time the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. And the new world. And Dwight Eisenhower wouldn't be far behind. This is God's Favorites, a history podcast. Dwight Eisenhower, Episode 3. The 1930s had Dwight Eisenhower hopping around the world under General MacArthur. And though the pair had a volatile relationship, Eisenhower said he learned a lot from him. MacArthur had dragged Eisenhower with him to the Philippines, which he confessed was not out of any obligation nor desire. He only went because you never said no to MacArthur. Mamie also dreaded the assignment. Prior to this, she had went to Panama with her husband and feared exotic diseases and poor conditions. Not only this, she wanted to keep her son with her in their perceived first world safety. This led to a lot of arguments between the pair and Mamie won. She and their son John remained behind for a while. Mamie wanted a comfort. But in letters, she also showed a reasoning of trauma and fear. Fear that she or her son or even Ike would become ill. I'm scared. Such a mess this whole thing is, she wrote to her family. Mamie would eventually be persuaded to make her way to him in 1936, but not happily. Ike's son John, however, seemed to quite enjoy his time there, driving his father mad with a pet cockatoo he had been given. The bird, named Oswald for whatever reason, drove Eisenhower mad. He disliked the squawking and smell, and John recalled that there were very few things that made his father as angry as the bird. In the meantime... President Franklin Roosevelt was actively working to oust MacArthur, and it was on a train station in Wyoming where Eisenhower watched MacArthur learn he had been stripped of his four-star rank, followed by an immediate meltdown. Eisenhower stayed quiet and observed. Tensions were building in Asia as well, and Eisenhower, though aware of the European conflict that was currently rising, was more concerned at this time with Japan. Now, Americans popularly wanted to be left out of everything at one point in history, even as Japan went on a rampage in Nanking. Despite that isolationist mindset, the Americans were there to help the Philippines form an army. If Japan ever tried to invade the Philippines, they reasoned they would be able to handle it themselves, an ounce of prevention, as they say. But it would be Neville Chamberlain, the man who wanted to make peace with Adolf Hitler, who would ironically be quoted as saying, it is always best and safe to count on the Americans for nothing but words. The experience of building an army from a group of inexperienced men alongside his West Point friend Jimmy Ord was the leadership training Ike probably didn't realize he needed. But it also brought a lot of strain and tragedy. A driver for Mamie Eisenhower would strike and injure a child during one of their trips. She would suffer from gastrointestinal trauma after this. And MacArthur continued to make Ike's life hell. And eventually, his beloved friend Jimmy would die in a plane crash 
after a student pilot made an error. It was all too much. In the meantime, Eisenhower was also listening to the news pouring in from all the European turmoil. On November 10th, 1938, a night known as Kristallnacht, Nazis had destroyed Jewish-owned shops, businesses, and temples. Around him, Eisenhower heard anti-Semitic chatterings from people he knew and respected. That was a disappointment, and he tried to limit his contact with certain individuals from whom he anticipated that sort of behavior. There was a high number of Jewish expatriates living in Manila, as well as those who sympathized with Hitler, so social events, he noted, would often get heated. Soon, much to his delight, and Mamie's, Eisenhower would get his walking papers from the Philippines to head back to the United States. Upon arrival back to the U.S., it was determined that Mamie needed to have her gallbladder removed. While she rested, Ike was out making moves, being immediately assigned as the commanding officer of the 1st Battalion, 15th Infantry Regiment in Fort Lewis. With the war heating up in Europe, the U.S. military had begun quietly building up their Pacific fleets and gearing up with tank exercises. Ike must have felt like a child at Christmas when he was able to take part in one of the military's biggest training exercises ever involving tanks. You'll remember how much Eisenhower loved tanks from the last episode. Eisenhower was one of many Army All-Stars at the Louisiana Maneuvers. These war games divided different companies into imaginary scrimmage armies, and they traversed through rough terrain to fight one another. Ike's love of tanks was coming into full fruition, and he was really, really, really talented at commanding these armies. The first exercises placed tanks on the offense. The next phases focused on defensive moves. The German military had mighty resources, and now was the time to figure out how best to combat those. These exercises were not easy, nor were they without loss. Some 26 men died in several horrible ways during these trainings. The preparations did not go unnoticed by the rest of the world, and despite the U.S. saying they were remaining out of all conflict, it was clear they were gearing up for it. So, when on a sunny Sunday in 1941... When the Japanese began destroying the Pacific Fleet at Pearl Harbor, Americans knew isolation was not a solution, and Mamie Eisenhower already knew her husband was ready to go. In the beginning, Eisenhower had legitimate concerns that his attachment to MacArthur could hurt him, and it likely would have had so many others not lauded and esteemed his work ethic. Despite the American public's desire for peace, the U.S. Army, with Brigadier General George Marshall, made sure that America was keeping up to date with its training and equipment, you know, just in case. They would be significantly more powerful, and that just-in-case philosophy also involved joint training between military branches. Adolf Hitler knew this. He knew America's army was growing, and it did not stop him from throwing mud at Roosevelt. One could have easily written Hitler off as just a madman, except he had the military might to back up his mouth. Germany's panzer division was fast. It had only been by sheer luck that the panzers had been delayed in heading toward the French port town of Dunkirk as smaller boats scurried to rescue the British expeditionary forces and free French forces from the beaches. They were so fast, they had to wait for backup. And that is one of two of the biggest mistakes Hitler makes during this entire war. He let the British expeditionary forces get off the beaches. It was a miracle for the Brits and an enormous victory for Churchill. 
Eisenhower was charged with keeping an eye on the Pacific from Washington, D.C. until 1942. He had also spent a good deal of the time planning on ways to defeat both Japan and Germany. He submitted a proposal stating that the best way to defeat Hitler was an assault from Britain through Western Europe. Ike gave the proposal to Marshall, and it looked something like this. Great Britain needed to be kept under guard. Russia had to keep fighting the Germans, and the Middle East must be defended. Everything else, Eisenhower reasoned, was optional, even if it was needed. Priorities had to be given to certain military movements, and that was the start of Bolero, the codename given to the rudimentary plans for America's entry into the European theater, a predecessor for D-Day. And everyone from Roosevelt to Churchill rightly held some reservations, a suggested invasion date of 1943 seemed way too soon. Were they ready for such an undertaking? Absolutely not. Even Eisenhower realized that the theory, good in practice, was impossible when no one agreed with anyone else on how to take Hitler out. There was much fighting amongst the Allies. They were allied in name, but not necessarily in opinion. With Bolero at a standstill, Eisenhower was still trying to learn all he could about being as good a leader as Marshall while he was in London. That was his entire focus, until he got distracted by a great pair of legs. On May 26, 1942, Dwight Eisenhower and Chief of Staff Mark Clark were met by their driver, a beautiful Irish woman named Kay Summersby. Kay was a member of Britain's Motorized Transport Corps. She was engaged to an American soldier a former model, and quite a wit. And though the pair would claim nothing extremely amorous ever occurred between them, at least initially, I feel quite confident calling shenanigans. This is the point where someone would make a joke saying, quote, and historians will say they were just roommates or friends, end quote. For 10 days, Kay drove Ike and Clark everywhere, even to meet British Lieutenant General Sir Bernard Montgomery. I am only saying Lieutenant for the benefit of my British friends. Montgomery became infuriated when Ike lit a cigarette in his house. He was forced to put it out, and according to Kay, Ike cursed about Montgomery all the way home, finally stopping once he realized Kay was watching him in her rearview mirror and smirking. She would write that Ike would eventually stop calling her Miss Summersby and immediately began calling her Kay. It's pretty intimate, and she became smitten. Ike wasn't conventionally handsome, but she found him appealing. She took Ike to Windsor Castle to meet King George, but the terribly busy monarch seemed to have forgotten about the meet and greet, so the pair took the opportunity to stroll the grounds together. Kay says that's when they heard a giggle. Quick, we must not be spotted, yelled one of the children, and two young girls ran by in a flash. Princess Elizabeth and Margaret had been spying on the two, and the pair crawled on all fours in an attempt not to be seen. It gave Kay and Ike a good laugh. Ike was set to return back to the States to report his findings, and it was Kay who dropped him off. He shyly gave her a box of chocolates, a, a rarity, and remarked, If I am ever back this way, I should like you to drive me again. Kay replied, I'd like that. His concerns about an Allied invasion were immediately expressed to Marshall, but instead of blowback, Marshall alerted Eisenhower that there was immense faith in his abilities to lead, so they were going to let him. After arriving back home to Mamie, who immediately inquired what the plans were for her husband's return to Europe and what was in store, 
Ike simply told his wife, I'm going to run the whole shebang. Ike did appear to miss Mamie immensely as she had been a constant companion in his life, and he arrived back in London on June 24, 1942, where he was greeted by Lord Louis Mountbatten. Initially, Eisenhower was told that his sergeant would be forced to stay in the army barracks, but he argued, much to the surprise of Mountbatten, that his orderly should also stay with him in one of London's cushiest hotels. After a few days of acclimating to his new duties and his chief of staff, Walter Bedell Smith, Ike quickly went back in search of Kay. He found out she had been assigned to General Andrew Tui Spatz. Ike immediately went straight to Tui, and as soon as he saw Summersby, the first thing he said was, Kay, where have you been? I have been looking all over London for you. He then turned on Tui and accused him of stealing an army driver for the Air Force. Tui begged Eisenhower not to take Kay, but all arguments fell flat, and two days later, the pair were reunited, an army bigwig and his driver. Although other people implied the relationship was something slightly more lascivious. In the meantime, the Allies had set up something of a media relay team. CBS London contained the likes of Edward R. Murrow and Robert Trout. The BBC began broadcasting not only its own news programs, but they also began broadcasting French programs that updated those with illegal radios in their homes. Nazis had outlawed certain radio stations, but those who knew how to bypass restricted channels could receive Ici Londres, a show where French journalists talked to their countrymen as well as passing coded messages to the French resistance for instructions. And though much intelligence was kept quiet as possible, the press had pretty open and direct access to both Winston Churchill and Dwight Eisenhower. But despite the alliance, there were nerves. Churchill was never fully convinced that they were ready to cross the channel under heavy fire. He was also incredibly wary of Stalin's turn against Hitler. The shaky alliance between the Soviet Union and Germany had fallen apart after Hitler broke his promise not to attack Soviet land. This is Hitler's second huge mistake. He pissed off the only person in the whole of Europe who may have been more unhinged than he was. But Churchill didn't trust the Kremlin. But it was becoming more and more clear that a joint alliance from two fronts was the only way Hitler was getting taken down. French General Charles de Gaulle was in England with some of the Free French forces, and though the French resistance was strong and mighty, they didn't have the manpower that matched the puppet Vichy government run by de Gaulle's former mentor, Philippe Piton. After Churchill eventually met with FDR at Hyde Park for a few days, he had eventually convinced Roosevelt that they needed a little more time to prepare. They needed aircraft, more guns, more everything. Being inactive was not an option, but too much haste was equally as dangerous. The problem was that America was also angry at Japan at the same time, so their resources were being spread too thinly. FDR was also faced with midterm elections and the fact that Americans were angry, but could they keep up with the German and Japanese war machines? Not to mention the extreme and catastrophic loss of British and Canadian commandos in the French port town of Dieppe. Roosevelt was willing to help, but he was between a rock and a hard place. The War Cabinet voted against a cross-channel operation in 1942, but maybe by 43. FDR was feeling a little more positive, at least. Eisenhower was devastated by the hesitation, but he seemed to be having fun playing house with Kay. She was always providing a listening ear. Early in the war, Adolf Hitler's forces had taken much of France. And along with Benito Mussolini's Italian forces, they occupied a lot of the French colonies of North Africa. 
Prime Minister Winston Churchill feared loss of access to the Mediterranean, the Strait of Gibraltar, the Suez Canal. Since the autumn of 1940, the British have been in a back-and-forth battle with Germany over the desert coastal sands of Egypt and Libya. Ike was promoted to Brigadier General, Major General, and Lieutenant General in less than two years. He became the Supreme Commander of Allied Forces, first in the Mediterranean. General Eisenhower would lay out a three-pronged attack plan called Operation Torch to land American and British troops to Rommel's west, while Rommel was too busy fighting British forces in the east. 125,000 troops would attack and land on the shores of Morocco, Tunisia, Algeria. But his strategy would be debated. It would get pushback by General George Marshall and Admiral Ernest King. Marshall and other U.S. commanders wanted to invade northern Europe instead. When Churchill and Britain continued to reject that idea, Marshall suggested to FDR that the U.S. just focused instead on Japan. With Marshall unable to change minds of the British and President Roosevelt, they would go ahead and give Operation Torch the go-ahead. But all the disagreements delayed the landing for a month. Ike would tell his friend General Patton that the past six weeks had been the most trying of his life. On November 8, 1942, Operation Torch was on. The Nazi-loyal Vichy French governments of those colonies would be convinced by Eisenhower and the American Consul General that they were there to help, and soon the Free French and former Vichys would all be fighting alongside the Allies. Yeah, that was going to have consequences. The Germans and Italians would swiftly move into southern France. Montgomery's British troops advanced from the east, with the Americans now in combat for the first time in this particular theater. Ike's troops definitely outnumbered the Germans, but they were inexperienced and unorganized. 300 American soldiers would die, 3,000 were wounded, 3,000 went missing, and they were pushed back 50 miles. But instead of giving in to the defeat, they just quickly learned from it reorganizing quickly, replacing commanders, and putting General George Patton in charge of the U.S. Second Corps. They would push back to victory, and by May of 1943, the Axis Army would surrender in North Africa. Allied forces would take 275,000 prisoners. It would be another mistake for the Germans and Italians, as they had spread themselves too thin. But spreading troops thinly was common on both sides of this war. With the lessons learned from Torch, Eisenhower and the Allies wasted a little time launching an invasion of Italy in September of 1943, codename Operation Avalanche. The fight, although in Italy, was against the Germans. The devastated Italians withdrew from the war, realizing that they had once again picked the incorrect side to support. But here's why this is important. It was an amphibious assault on Salerno, Italy, and that's going to provide them with this valuable experience that they're soon going to need for a looming battle on the western shores of France. Not to mention it increased the Allies' presence in the Mediterranean. As Ike planned during the days, his chess moves, he had Kay on standby. His weekends were spent at Telegraph Cottage, but he loved the place so much that he spent most his nights there. He would relax by drawing, even painting a photo of the home. He shared the home with several of his cohorts and his unofficial housewife, Kay. Kay had started as a driver, but became something more of a secretary. They would play cards and laugh all hours of the nights, and she would plan parties and host events. When Kay lamented one day to Ike that she missed her dog, a Scottish terrier, sometime shortly after, Ike bought Kay another dog. Ike named the dog Telic. When Kay asked what this name meant, he said, It's a combination of Telegraph Cottage and Kay. 
two parts of my life that make me very happy. Eisenhower's son John has always stated that his father was attracted to vivacious women, so the story didn't really come as a surprise to them. Now, Eisenhower never mentioned Kay when he wrote to Mamie, when he told her that he had acquired a dog, nor did he elaborate on what the dog's name meant. But Eisenhower's feelings for Kay were a very poorly kept secret. Years later, Kay would write that of course they were in love, but that he was loyal to Mamie and would have never left her. War leaves little time for dalliances, though. In one moment of weakness, Kay would note that Eisenhower would have two uniforms tailored for her in France with fabric rationed. It was extremely extravagant. She thanked him and noted that he held her hand a little bit longer than he should have, looking at her longingly before walking away. He later apologized for his behavior before finally asking her, God damn it, Kay, don't you realize I'm crazy about you? There would be an explosion of passionate kisses, which heightened an existing tension, Kay said. But she also said it ended there and went no further. Mamie Eisenhower would hear the rumors, but she never publicly acknowledged them. To be sure, they likely heard her. But she held her head high publicly. The ongoing emotional attachment did not distract from Dwight's task at hand, the planning of the Allied invasion of Western Europe. He was shipped home temporarily to see his family after being named the Supreme Leader of the Allied Invasion. It was a courtesy from Marshall, knowing that this was a make-or-break moment. It would take everyone, an assault on all fronts, in the West, a northern entry point. But where? It would require fighting. By land, by air, by sea. And it would also require trusting Joseph Stalin and the Soviets. So Eisenhower headed back to the U.S. for a brief moment on January 1st, 1944, but not before announcing that he believed that the war in Europe would be won that year. Upon arrival home, there was some tension between Mamie and Ike. No doubt the rumors, and no doubt the distance between them. Maybe even some resentment on the part of Ike left over from her initial refusal to travel to the Philippines. But there was no time to fight nor argue as they were immediately summoned for dinner with President Roosevelt. Oh, there were parties and the Eisenhower stopped at West Point to visit John. His father attempted to urge him to apply for field artillery. It would be safer, but John, it seemed, was just as persistent as his father. But Ike remained distracted by what he had left behind in London. Not just de Gaulle and Churchill and thoughts of Operation Overlord. Because you see, at one point during a stay at a private cottage, Ike mistakenly called Mamie Kay. She erupted. With Ike stating that of course he was going to accidentally call her by the name of the only woman that he'd been around for months. It caused a bit of trouble and strain for the rest of the visit, but Ike learned very quickly that Mamie had created her own life for herself, and she'd kept her house in order, and despite rumors of her husband's behavior, she had held her head high. She didn't need him, and for whatever it was worth, Ike acknowledged his faults in the situation. And he had missed Mamie, he told her, tremendously. But now it was time to go beat the Nazis. Operation Overlord. For Operation Overlord to succeed, Eisenhower needed to be surrounded with those he could trust. Nazi intelligence was everywhere, and with a puppet government controlling most of France, Eisenhower was even skeptical of trusting Charles de Gaulle with information. Not because of the doubts concerning de Gaulle's character. Rather, it was more concerns of Vichy sympathizers within the ranks. 
De Gaulle would have to be kept in the dark as long as possible. Eisenhower formed his staff with those he trusted the most, including Bedell Smith, who Churchill despised, but Ike defended. And, of course, Patton. And when Patton arrived, Ike introduced him to Kay. Kay immediately said a curse word in front of Patton and shocked him, and when he asked her where she had learned to speak in such a way, she told Patton that Ike taught her most of the foul utterances. Concerned, Patton asked Ike if he had anything he did not tell Kay. Of course not, Ike said. I keep secrets from her, too. The Dieppe Raid had taught the Allies what not to do in case of an amphibious invasion. So, despite the devastation, especially for the Canadian troops, it was a valuable lesson. Resources had to be accumulated, and they needed more machinery, and they needed more deception. If the Nazis thought the Allies were heading somewhere else, it would leave certain areas more vulnerable, but not completely. And it was false intelligence, called Operation Fortitude, that led Hitler to believe the Allies were going to try to invade in Calais. Instead, the Allies' actual plan was to intervene a 50-mile stretch of a beach in Normandy. Divided into five sections, you'll know their names. Utah, Omaha. Gold. Juno. Sword. This would be a dual air and amphibious attack. Neptune, the naval component, an assault would move soldiers across the English Channel, and Overlord, the whole shebang, as I could refer to it, was an air assault with paratroopers and gunners trying to take out German firepower on the beach, as well as getting the soldiers from the water onto the land to push back against the gunners. De Gaulle was eventually told of the plans on June 3rd. He was furious he had been kept in the dark. Montgomery was as eager as Eisenhower, but they had to contain the urge to rush with careful observation. They had to consider intelligence, as well as the weather. On Eisenhower's staff was a meteorologist named James Stagg. Stagg knew Eisenhower was watching for breaks in these stormy weather conditions. There would be runs to take out gunners. Through forecasting, Stagg advised Eisenhower that he predicted a small break in storms sometime between June 5th and the 6th. The 6th, Stagg said, would provide the paratroopers some cloud cover, though it would be an incredibly bumpy ride. But there were no allies to heavily disrupt German supply lines while still working towards the specific date of June 6th. BBC's French radio broadcast a message on June 1st. They didn't have allied boots on the ground, but they had the Maquis, the armed French resistance. And the Maquis had been waiting on a specific set of instructions disguised in a poem, Paul Bellon's poem, Chanson d'Autumn, The Song of Autumn. It's on June 1st they received the first message. Ici Londres began with the Morse code for the letter V. This is London, where the French talk to their countrymen. Stand by for a personal message. The long sobs of the violins of autumn. I repeat, the long sobs of the violins of autumn. That was the first message. On June 5th, they received a second. Wound my heart with their monotonous tone. I repeat, 
wound my heart with a monotonous tone. The first lines were a signal that the Allied invasion was coming. The second indicated that it would be occurring within a 48-hour window and that the resistance knew that meant it was time to start destroying train tracks in Normandy to disrupt German supply lines. It's important to note the instrumental role of the French resistance and how much that helped during the D-Day invasion. Too often, especially in the American narrative, the French get written off as cowards, but in fact, many free French forces sacrifice themselves to Nazi lines to aid the British in their escape from Dunkirk. Many resistance members were hunted and tortured. To be caught meant death, and yet they continued to fight. A short naval and aerial bombardment preceded the landings, which began around 6.30 a.m. Pre-invasion, Eisenhower gave a speech to his men for encouragement, but to let them know that it was not going to be a walk in the park. company with our brave allies and brothers in arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. And they did. At Omaha and Juneau, where the Americans and Canadians were landing, respectively, they both suffered terribly. Runs to take out Nazi gunners at those two locations were not as successful at other beaches. Meanwhile, American forces at Utah were blown off course, but with sheer numbers alone, they pushed back on violent assaults. Hedgerows of earth and barbed wire made for brutal injuries in addition to gunshots. The sacrifice was going to be brutal, and Eisenhower knew this. German forces used the landscape as defensive forts, creating deadly killing fields which Allied troops had to cross. Now, this was perhaps the biggest miscalculation of all. What were the troops going to do once they made it past the beaches? And there would be a lot of disgust later. The Brits would express dismay at Montgomery's handling of the invasion of Caen, and there was also disgust at the fact that American soldiers were frequently cutting up and making jokes at inopportune moments. And knowing my family, and that they were there, I'm quite sure they were amongst some of those inappropriately behaving... American soldiers. The British would eventually capture Caen, and the Americans captured Cherbourg. D-Day, the capital D-Day of the invasion, was just day one of this campaign. But suddenly, Hitler was having to divert troops to different corners of France, thinning his massive military. The Normandy invasion, I think, is often thought of as massive and an instantaneous win for the Allies. When what it really was was weeks of bloody stalemate won purely by the push of a group of countries who, though they rarely agreed on a good solution for action, decided that it would have to be might and numbers that would beat Hitler in the West. A victory that would be accelerated by the fact that Adolf Hitler had made the only person as crazy as he was in Europe angry. Stalin and the Soviets would set out to the east as the Austrian, more and more delirious and paranoid, set out to protect the borders of the Reich. The thousand-year Reich. That did not last as long as he thought. In the west, they had slightly 
underestimated the Nazis, and bodies littered the area. Death tolls were astronomical, and yet they still made it. Eisenhower was told not to take too many risks out in the fields, but he couldn't resist climbing into the back of a P-51 to take a flight behind some Nazi lines. Nothing happened, but Eisenhower exited the plane, giddy at some good old-fashioned rule-breaking like he was back at West Point. Disagreements still flew between the Allies, uh, specifically Churchill to Montgomery. British beef aside, Eisenhower and his friend Patton were ready to unleash their mutual passion on the Nazis. The Third Army. The tanks. But victory was not yet secure, and Eisenhower had no idea of the horrors he was about to uncover. The crimes committed as part of Adolf Hitler's final solution. God's Favorites is a bi-weekly history podcast, or at least tries to be when working a full-time job is not trying to kill me. Thanks, everyone, for your patience. Join us next time as Ike finishes a campaign in Europe, documents the true wars of the Nazis, and has one of the most important meetings of his life. Sources for today's episode include Eisenhower, A Soldier's Life by Carlos Desta, Eisenhower in War and Peace by Gene Edward Smith. I love this book, guys. Get it, get it, get it. National World War II Museum website, Eisenhower's National Historic website, Martin Blumenson's Kasserine Pass Battles, and the U.S. Army Center of Military History. Thanks to everyone who donates to our Patreon. That money goes to buy these books or to pay for subscription articles that are hidden behind paywalls. We want to make sure that the authors that we use are getting resources. This also goes to pay for streaming costs, music licensing, all that. You know the drill. God's Favorites are History Podcast is on Facebook, and you can always find me on TikTok at Melissa Fairlady. We have a lot of fun over there. We'll see you next time, friends. <laughs>